Good morning again. Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We are looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 25, this morning. And before I read that, let's pray together. Father, we do long to love you more, to know you more fully, to delight in you more fully, to enjoy you more fully, and to glorify you more fully. We pray, Father, that you would pour out your Spirit on us this morning, that you would give us open hearts and open minds to receive what you have to say to us in your Word. We pray that you would teach us, that you would train us, that you would shape us and mold us into people who more fully reflect your image and glory in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our scripture reading is Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground that the Lord God had formed, every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What is not good in your life? Now, depending on your personality, you might be able to, to, to list a whole host of things, right? In fact, some of you already have a list started. There are plenty of things that are not good in this life. Everything from flat tires to COVID-19, right? From broken kitchen appliances to broken bones to broken families to broken hearts. But much of that, maybe even most of that, is a result of the fall. Sin came into this world, disrupted the created order, corrupted the human heart, disintegrated human society, and we have been feeling the effects ever since. What is striking in our passage this morning is that there is something not good before sin. In the perfect world that God had made, there was good and there was not good. Now, we're going to come to this passage rather simply this morning. We're, we're just going to ask three questions. Uh, what is not good? What is God's solve? And what is the result? What is not good? What is God's solution? And what is the result? 
First, what is not good? Verse 18 again. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Pretty straightforward, right? What, what is not good? That the man should be alone. It's obvious. And yet it needs to be stated. Why? Because if you or I were, were counseling Adam, we would tend to over-spiritualize this moment. If we were talking to Adam, we would say something like, well, Adam, you've got so much. You've got the animals. Uh, they don't talk back. That's true. But, but there's good and bad in that. And of course, you've got God, Adam. I mean, how can you feel lonely when God is right here in the garden? Your loneliness, it must be a lack of faith. If only you had more faith, Adam, you'd be happy here with God and you wouldn't need other people. But that's not what God says. God says, it is not good. And so the observation itself is an important one. It is not good for the man to be alone. Apart from sin, apart from even Adam's subjective feelings, God says, it is not good. Therefore, it is not good. But maybe the question we should ask is, is why? Why is it not good? What is so bad about the man being alone? There are at least four possibilities. Uh, the, the first has to do with man's psychology, right? That, that, that if the man is alone, he will be lonely. Uh, this is the idea that there, there is a, a psychological need for companionship. The second has to do with man's purpose. Man was created as the image of God, but there are limits to how much one person can reflect God's image in a big world. More people, specifically more diverse people, are able to display more of who God is. And so God looks at one person made in his image and thinks, no, no, th this will never do. We need more of this in the world. A third possibility has to do with man's job or his vocation. Humanity was created to subdue the earth. Now, there are about 57 million square miles of land on the earth. How can one man work and keep the whole earth? And of course, a fourth possibility has to do with another particular point in man's job description, not cultivation, but procreation. Man is particularly unable to fulfill this part of his role apart from the creation of woman. And so, what is not good? That the man should be alone. Why, why is that not good? Well, there's a psychological reason, loneliness. There's a, a sort of teleological reason that, 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 reflects, that man is called to reflect the fullness of God's image. There's a vocational reason, cultivating the whole earth. And there's a, a procreational reason, something man as an individual is eminently unqualified to do. So, which is it? Well, I think this is one of those areas where we don't actually have to choose. Uh, there, there is truth in all of these things. And we'll come back to at least some of them as we move into God's solve. And so one, question one, what is not good? That the man should be alone. Question two, what is God's solve? What is his solution? In our text, we see three things. We see companionship, complementarity, and covenant. First, companionship. When God recognizes the objective not-goodness of man being alone, he moves to provide for the man a companion. 
Now, we're going to get into a number of details of this, but to start, I just want to note two things. Uh, first, note the delay. Now, you would think that God being sovereign and good, the moment he realized the not good of man's solitary state, he would have provided companionship. Oddly enough, that is not what God did. Verse 19 says, God had formed every beast of the ground. That, that is, as Genesis 1 pictures, the animals were created prior to the man. But God then takes time to bring the animals to the man to see what he would call them. Now, naming is an aspect of authority. You get to name what is under your authority. So people name things like their boats or their businesses, their children, and sometimes their cars. You know, we name those things which are under our authority. God names light and darkness, heaven, earth, and sea in chapter 1, but he leaves creatures to be named by the man. And there, there is a point to this parade, of course. God, God wants man to see that each of these animals is not a suitable helper, a fit companion. And so notice, God allows the not good to exist for a little bit longer, right, for an extended time to prepare man for the good. He doesn't move from not good to woman. He moves from not good through the animals, still not good, to the woman. And the delay is surely instructive for Adam. Now, I point this out because oftentimes people find themselves in delay, we feel stuck in the not good, wondering when God is going to move us forward. And might I suggest that God is doing something in the not good. He is using it. It is purposeful. I don't know its purpose. I don't know God's purposes for the difficulties that he has in your life. But God, God does, and sometimes that has to be enough, right? We, we wait on him. He knows what he's doing. He has purposes for her, his delay and so we wait on him. The second thing to note at the start is that we typically come to this passage and we talk about marriage, and I'm going to do that, of course, but, but we miss something if we limit our discussion to marriage. You see, by providing the man with a woman, God provides not just the woman, but the means to family and community and society, right? By providing Adam with Eve, he provides not just Eve, but the family that she would bring. Uh, by providing one, God provided all. And here is my point. God is not just giving one man, one wife here. He is giving humanity community here. Which means the solution, right, the, the solve to the not good, a man being alone, is not just marriage, but community in general. And what this means is, right, for those who are single or stay single, they need not miss out on the good of community, or for that matter, the good of family. God has provided his family in the church. If you are a part of the church, you need never be alone. Now, some will say, reasonably so, but, but it's not the same thing. Okay, I, I get that. But we shouldn't so emphasize marriage that we miss out on the good of community. Marriage is temporal. It will not last into the resurrection. But community is forever, particularly the community of the church. And so for starters, we, we have this delay and we have the goodness of community. Companionship is a good, though God might delay it for our greater good, for his purposes. And we find that companionship, not just in a spouse, but in community. So first, companionship. Second, complementarity. 
when I was in grade school, there was a Paula Abdul song, Opposites Attract. There are at least a few of you who remember that song. It was a, a pretty silly song about mostly silly differences. Its message was that our relationship uh, will work despite these silly differences because we are attracted to each other because of these silly differences, because opposites attract. And there is a kind of folk wisdom in that, I guess, but it can, of course, be just as true the, the opposite, right? Uh, that it can be just as true the other way, that opposites repel. Uh, you know, personality opposites may endear uh, or they may create conflict. It can go either way. And when I use the word complementarity, I, I don't mean anything quite so mundane, uh, nor am I trying to evoke everything in the complementarianism versus egalitarianism debate. I, I just want to say that as we look at this passage, we should see that women are given to complement, the woman is given to complement the man, that is to complete him by being different. Now, again, I also want to reiterate that while this applies directly to the marriage context, given what we've just seen, though, it is also true in some sense that it applies to all community. And so just because you're not married doesn't mean that these words do not apply. We need others to complement us, to fill in what we lack precisely because they are different. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 21 about different people in the family of God, he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We need others who are different precisely because they are different. Now, I need to back up uh, for just a second, right? After God paraded the animals before the man and no suitable helper was found, he took a rib from Adam and made it into a woman and brought her to the man. Notice this is the, the first father giving away the first bride. Now, it is this woman who is the helper fit for the man. And let's focus for a minute on these two words in verse 18, helper and fit. First, the word helper. Uh, the word helper in our culture is, frankly, pejorative often. Uh, when do we use that word? We talk about Santa's helpers or daddy's little helper. And in the latter case, we mean something like, uh, a child who plays a nominal role in order to feel significant. When we bring that to this word, we seriously distort and therefore miss the implications of what this passage is saying. In Scripture, this word helper is most often used of God. And secondly, it's used in military contexts. And so of God, we read things like Psalm 33, 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 121, one through two, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In these contexts, the idea is of necessary aid that comes because we are in need. The idea is that God fills up what we lack. He does what we cannot do. One commentator said that the, the word, therefore, does not imply inferiority, but essential contribution. The implication of helper is not that the woman is inferior, but that what she has to offer is essential. Another commentator said that this word uh, does imply subordination, which is why it is so surprising that God is called a help. But even if that is the case, what we need to realize is that worldly understandings of superiority and service are precisely what God turns on their head 
when he calls himself a help and what Jesus came to undo. As Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so even if the word did imply subordination, we should see God as overturning those cultural implications in his being our help and in Jesus coming to serve. And now, whichever way you, you, you take that word and they both end in the same place, the word necessarily implies the inadequacy of man alone. That's clearly seen in, in other places where the word is used, like Joshua chapter 10, when a certain king realizes the strength of the Lord. And so what does he do? He sends messages to other kings saying, come to me and help. And implicitly, he's saying, I don't have the strength to fight the armies of the Lord on my own. I need your help. The woman is given as a necessary aid to the man. And again, I would insist that this has a broader application than simply within marriage. It's true within marriage, but it's broader that, that uh, companionship is given as a necessary aid to each one of us. We cannot do life, nor the Christian life, on our own. We need others to come alongside and help us. And so scripture uh, repeatedly uh, says things like uh, in, in Ecclesiastes 4, uh, two are better than one. Or Proverbs 18, 1, uh, that one who isolates himself is unwise. Or uh, in Hebrews chapters 3 and 10, they, they teach us that, that we need the daily exhortation of others to keep us from sin's hardening power and to uh, continue in the pursuit of love and good works. We need one another as a help in the Christian life. So that's the first word, helper. The second word then is fit. Uh, this is a, a great word. It's actually really a, an odd phrase that means like opposite. Uh, one 19th century commentator said, it is one who by relative difference and essential equality should be his fitting complement. Like, opposite. Relative difference, essential equality. Now, none of the animals were a fit. None of the animals were a fit because none of the animals were like the man. The woman would be like the man in certain ways. She would be his equal as a person, unlike the beasts, none of whom were a fit helper. She is equal to him, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And if and when, of course, anywhere in the church, we deny the equal dignity of men and women, we are rejecting biblical teaching. Right? People in the church, Christians, should be champions of the full equality of men and women. Uh, chapter 1 tells us that both are fully uh, made in the image of God. And here we are told that the woman is the necessary aid to fill up what is lacking in the man and that she is like him. Matthew Henry famously commented on these verses, writing very early in the 18th century. He said, the woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Now, he's maybe reading a bit into the rib, but the sentiment is surely there. The woman is man's equal and his opposite. Uh, that is, uh, the woman is equal without being the same. 
This, by the way, is often what makes this discussion so difficult, right? We, we want either sameness that begets equality or a difference that begets inequality. And we have difficulty saying different and equal. But, of course, we must. I mean, historically, any four-year-old would have been able to tell you that boys and girls are not the same. There is a clear, objective, physical component to this complementarity. Male and female bodies complement one another to perform a function, a function that uh, without one another they could not perform. Now, I realize that there is debate on every aspect of this reality nowadays, but I'm going to assume for this discussion that objective physical difference. The more difficult question often in many conservative Christian circles is, okay, how does this objective physical difference relate to other kinds of differences? Now, this is a question that would take more time than I can give here to adequately address, but let me just outline a few things. Uh, first, while there are these absolute physical differences, there are relative ones as well. You know, men tend to be taller than women, but of course, any given woman could be taller than any given man. Uh, similarly, men tend to be physically stronger than women, but any given woman could be stronger than any given man. Some diseases are more common in one sex than the other, uh, but for many of those diseases, men or women could get them. Even uh, those who study the brain sometimes say that the research suggests that there are certain differences in the male and the female brain. But my point is actually that whenever we posit the essence of masculinity or femininity in these relative differences, we actually obscure the truth and confuse people because relative differences are not always true. And so while we might talk about masculinity and femininity expressing itself in relative psychological and physiological distinctions, we do better to talk about God-given roles, uh, roles which particularly manifest themselves when male and female are brought together, whether in marriage or in the church, roles which may nevertheless influence the way we live out who God has made us to be in other areas of life. Now, by roles, I decidedly do not mean who cooks dinner and who mows the lawn, right? Those are relative and culturally defined roles. Rather, I mean the roles of servant leader on the one hand and fit and necessary ally on the other. And I reference here our passage as well as Ephesians chapter 5. Man's leadership within marriage is implied here, by the way, in that man names the woman, both here in chapter 2 and later in chapter 3. But, but here's the short of it. As we think about uh, men and women in this passage, right? Men, women are your equals, as well as a God-given and necessary help to supply what you lack. Let that humble you and generate gratitude. And women, you have dignity as being necessary to supply what men lack. You are man's like opposite, Scripture says, equal yet distinct. And those distinctions may be both absolute, there are certainly some that are absolute, but also relative in nature, but they find their essence in the roles that men and women play in marriage and in the church. Now, I may have just done more confusing than clarifying here. Uh, if so, let's talk, right? Pepper me with questions, and together we will gain greater clarity as we reflect on who God has created us to be as male and female. So question two, so far has been, what does God solve for man's aloneness? And we've seen first, companionship, second, complementarity, and third, covenant. 
When you think about marriage, if you do not think about the marriage covenant, you are not thinking about marriage. Right? Marriage is a covenant. Uh, now, it's true uh, the word covenant is not found in these verses. In fact, some people don't even find marriage in this text. But the idea of the marriage covenant is certainly here, and I'll show that in two ways. Uh, first, in later reflections on this passage, the idea of covenant marriage is present. That is, in later reflections within Scripture itself, the idea of covenant marriage is present. So, uh, Matthew chapter 19 some Pharisees come to Jesus uh, to test him, and they ask, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now note, divorce assumes marriage. Okay, and, and then Jesus answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So this, this one fleshness, according to Jesus, is of the essence of marriage. God has joined them together, let not man separate them. God has joined them together in marriage, let not man separate them in divorce. Uh, Malachi chapter 2 uh, says of one's wife this, She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? So again, the, the covenanting and the making one are both seen as the means by which the marital union is formed. And so later reflections on this passage clearly connected it to the, to the marital union and to the marital covenant. Second, the, the language in this passage is actually all covenant language. And so for that, let's, let's get into it. What we find here is a prioritized, permanent, private union. After God brings the woman to the man, the narrator explains what this means in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, the first thing to note about this relationship is that it is prioritized. It takes priority over every other relationship. The, the word leave is legitimate, but maybe perhaps weak. Uh, this word can be translated forsake, abandon desert, neglect, fail, as in when something you depend upon fails, reject, or even give up. Therefore, a man shall forsake his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That's stronger language. And this language of forsake or leave is, is actually covenantal language. Deuteronomy 29, 25 warns of the day when Israel would abandon, that is forsake, the covenant of the Lord. Same word. The adulterous woman in the book of Proverbs is one who forsakes the companion of her youth. At the same time, God is one who will not leave you or forsake you. Deuteronomy 31 verse 8. And so forsake is this strong term echoing covenant language. It means to totally abandon loyalty for someone. And in this case, it means that the husband uh, transferring his loyalty from his parents to his new spouse. Now, why is this important? Well, in a, in a culture that so much valued honoring father and mother, this is a profound statement. It tells us that the marriage bond is stronger than blood. And, and if the wife is more important than parents in that culture, your wife is the most important human relationship you have, period. Marriage must be a prioritized relationship. Marriage is more important than your work, more important than your children, more important than your friends or your hobbies or yourself. 
Second, the marriage union is permanent. Again, the language of hold fast is covenantal language throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, as just one example, it says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. That is repeated again and again in the book of Deuteronomy. The, the tribes of Israel were to hold on to, again, same thing, hold fast to their inheritance for all generations. The language speaks, therefore, of the permanence of this union. The husband is to hold fast and never let go. And so this marriage union is prioritized. It is permanent. And third, it is private. Now, by that, I mean exclusive, right? For, for starters, we find here only two people, right? The man and the woman. And second, when Jesus and others in the New Testament quote this passage, they actually, they, they quote it slightly differently. They tweak the language to say the two became one flesh, not the three or the four or whatever, right? The marriage union is a prioritized, permanent, and private, therefore an exclusive relationship between two people. And finally, uh, this prioritized, permanent, private relationship is a, is a marital union. The two become one. That union is not merely the, the sexual union, though this is why sex outside of marriage is so bad, right? Because it's a lie. It's not sealing a permanent union. It's not an expression of my permanent commitment to you. It is more often just the opposite. It's an expression of my commitment to me and my happiness. But the one flesh union is more than that. Uh, some see it as the children who resolve. Uh, how much more one flesh can you get than two people literally becoming one person in their child whose flesh comes from the joining of the two? And of course, godly offspring, according to God, is one of the reasons for marital union, according to Malachi 2.15. But the one flesh is, is still more than that. Uh, some see it as a spiritual and emotional relationship, a, a community of interests and pursuits. And that is true, too. Uh, what, uh, what Peter says, or what Paul says in Philippians about human relationships in general should especially be true in marriage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count your wife, count your husband more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The two have become one. You are no longer to think about yourself apart from your spouse. You have, been, you have given up your independence. You have been joined to another. It doesn't mean you become codependent, right? It means you become a little interdependent community with common visions, common goals, common purposes. So one flesh means more than sexual union, more than children. It means even more than having a, spirit and a spiritual and emotional connection. One flesh means a new objective relationship has been made by God, right? Jesus said what God has joined together. See, God does something new in marriage. Something that simply uh, having sex or having children does not do. Uh, Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, 18, you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. Right? The fact that she now has him does not make him her husband. There is something objective that God does in the marital union. And so marriage is a God-given, prioritized, permanent, private union of one man and one woman. 
Now, it's at this point, right, that, that we, we have to notice, we have to say, we have to realize or remember, right, that the marriage union from the beginning was about Christ and the church. God wants to teach us something about Christ and the church. Marriage is God's picture book, his illustration, his diagram for union with Christ. And note just a, a few of the connections, right? First, God, God prioritized us. Right? The Father did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Jesus did not consider his own interests, but ours when he went to the cross. God prioritized amazingly and incomprehensibly prioritized this relationship. Second, God promises to hold us fast, to never leave us or forsake us, despite the fact that we daily forsake Him. Now, He can do that. He can commit to sinners because He has already forsaken Christ on our behalf. Psalm 22, 1, the, the, the prayer of, of Jesus on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Same language as in Genesis 2. Why have you done that? And yet God did not forsake him forever. Psalm 16, 10, for you will not abandon, same word, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. God raised Jesus from the dead. And this is how we know that God will never leave us nor forsake us because he did not forsake Christ. And by faith, we are in Christ. And so Jesus says, Matthew 28, 20, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Third, our, our covenant with God is private in two senses, at least. Uh, one, in that it requires our personal faith. We each individually must believe on the Lord Jesus in order to be saved. But two, God does not have a bride other than the church. Uh, there are not two brides of Christ, only one. And, and we're it, right? The church, Catholic, universal, right? The, the church in all times and all places, we are the bride of Christ. Our union with Christ is this prioritized, permanent, and personal union. Finally, it is a covenant union. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 16 to 17, Paul says, Or do you not know that, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, note Paul is, is really talking about three different kinds of union there. He, in the marriage union, the two become one flesh. Paul distances that from sexual immorality, where the two become merely one body. He uses a different word. But the high point, right, what everything is pointing to is the union par excellence, right, is our union with Jesus, where we become one spirit with him. In this union, Scripture teaches uh, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are covenantally in Christ, which means He is our representative before the Father. He is our head and mediator with the Father. He stands before the Father on our behalf. When the Father looks at us, He sees Jesus because we are in Jesus. And so we are righteous in Christ. We are holy in Christ. We are beloved in Christ. But by the Spirit, Christ is also in us, right? The Spirit of God dwells in us. In us, the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, and as the Spirit is dwelling in us, He's conforming us to the image of Christ. And as He conforms us to the image of Christ, our objective unity takes on an existential form as we are united to Christ more and more in interests and pursuits as we become like Him. Just note the completeness of the story of Scripture. Right? It, it begins in a garden with a marriage, and it ends 
in a garden with a marriage where our union with Christ is consummated shows us that showing us that all of history right all of history is moving to this end that we were created for something more even something more than marriage we were created to be joined to Christ to be united to him that's where all of history is going and so what is not good? Well, that the man should be alone. What does God solve? God provides man with a covenanted, complementary companion in the woman. And of course, all of that is pointing us forward, pointing us forward to our union with Christ. Well, third, what is the result? Exaltation and intimacy. Uh, we skipped over verse 23 earlier, but in verse 23, when God brings the woman to the man, we read this. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, th this right here, right, you can see because the way it's printed in your English Bibles, most likely that it's, it's poetry, right? It's indented, it, it's stylized, and there is this threefold repetition of, of what... Uh, what is called the, the feminine near demonstrative, right? The, that is the, the, the near demonstrative as opposed to far. So this versus that, right? Uh, so three times you have the feminine form of the word this. The first time in, in the ESV, it's translated this. The second two times it's translated she, but it's the same word. And so what Adam is saying, he's really saying something like this. He's saying, at last, finally, now this is something, right? This is what I've been talking about. This is what I've been waiting for. This is perfect. Thank you, God. Right? Adam's immediate response to God's gift is thanksgiving. He immediately breaks into poetry. He immediately breaks into song. His heart rejoices that God has given him someone like him, someone to be his companion, someone who his own flesh is his own flesh and blood, as it were. You may know uh, Johnny Cash has a song called Flesh and Blood. Uh, where he sings about, singing actually about the beauty of creation. And then he says in the chorus, he says, but flesh and blood needs flesh and blood, and you're the one I need. Mother nature is quite a lady, but you're the one I need, right? Creation is great, he's saying, but we need one another, right? We need people. Well, finally, the, the conclusion of the whole uh, is something that few experience in this life, whether you're married or not. Uh, verse 25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I think, I think it's true that most people have a, a deep sense of shame when it comes to their bodies. But it's not because there's something wrong with our bodies, actually. Though they are broken by sin, that's true. But it's because there is something wrong with our souls. Uh, we know that we are not what we were made to be, and we don't want to be known. Not that deeply, not that fully. Adam and Eve, no, naked, no shame. No shame in chapter 2. That's going to change in chapter 3, but no shame in chapter 2. They weren't afraid of being known. They, weren't, they, they didn't hide. But we hide. We cover because we are ashamed. Not, not because our bodies are, are, are bad, but because our hearts are broken. And covering our bodies is, is really just a metaphor for the covering over of our souls, the covering over of our sin. Can you imagine with me for a minute, right? That, can you imagine that they, there was a time when people were not afraid to be known that deeply, when nothing in your soul needed to be hidden, when there was no guilt, no shame, no fear? And can you imagine that things will be like that again one day?
that Jesus, having taken our guilt, taken our shame on the cross, faced our fears at the cross, he has removed our guilt, he has covered our shame, he has conquered our fear in his resurrection. And as we grow in Christ, we know more and more that glorious shamelessness. But when he returns, on account of his work, we will stand unashamed before the throne of grace, vindicated before all the world, Scripture teaches, not because of our goodness, but because of his, which has become ours, in union with him. Let's rejoice in that day, even as we anticipate it by trusting more and more in the flesh and blood work of Jesus, our bridegroom and friend. Let's rejoice and let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus, our bridegroom. We thank you that we belong to him. We thank you for the picture that you have given us of that in marriage. We pray that even as we uh, think about marriage in this life, that our eyes would continually be pointed uh, forward and upward to Jesus, forward and upward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that that would be the wedding feast that we long for. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.